Hi, this is Sarah Bueno. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Today's guest is an old friend of mine, Anjali Shaw Johnson. Anjali is a somatic therapist in Portland, Oregon. And in Portland, she offers both somatic therapy and body work and is going to be offering consultation and supervision to other therapists very soon as well. So Anjali is a supervisor of mine when I first started in my career, and I always held her in such high regard. I think we're almost exactly the same age, but she'd been a social worker longer than I had. And, you know, she and I talk about it a little bit in the opening of our interview, but the peace and calm and I guess just the love and care that she radiated. And I felt so supported when I was working with her. And we worked in, if anybody's familiar with Chicago, we worked in the uptown neighborhood. And so there's a lot of stress. And it being my first job, I was A, figuring out how to be a therapist and how to be effective in any way, shape or form and, and dealing with really complex cases and situations and I just always felt seen and heard and cared for by her. So I still look back on that time as even though it was extremely hard, I look back on it as being so rewarding and such an excellent learning opportunity. And it was such a wonderful place to be. So I am really excited that Anjali agreed to speak today. I actually am surprised that she said yes. I've asked a lot of people who I think don't generally gravitate towards the spotlight because I think that they have really important voices that need to be heard. And most people actually that I ask are like, oh gosh, I'm so scared. But I'm really glad that she stepped up and did this. I think that you'll really enjoy this interview. So please do enjoy Anjali Shaw Johnson. Anjali, OMG, I'm so excited to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. Yay. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Thank you. So for listeners, Anjali is a former supervisor of mine. We spent time in the trenches at a place called Alternatives doing youth and and family work. And when I met Anjali, I've told you this before, Anjali too, and she'll probably laugh at this. But when I met Anjali, I was like, I wish I could like have that same calming effect on people that she has on me. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I will laugh. (laughs) Yeah. But that's how I feel about you still. I really appreciate that. I really do. Well, good. I remember the first time meeting you and thinking about how exciting it was that you already had this life before and then came into being coming a therapist and just rocked it, which works in the music thing. Uh, Thank you. Yay. So why don't we just dig right into it and tell people what you're doing now? Because it's been, what, like eight years since Alternatives? Well, since we, I started working at Alternatives, probably eight or nine years. Yeah, I think probably eight or nine years is right. I start to lose track a little bit. So yeah, my role in some ways has changed a lot and in other ways feels very similar. I'm still working as a therapist, but... I've kind of changed my own title a few times as I'm trying to figure out what the right fit is now that I'm in private practice. So since alternatives, I moved across the country and now I'm in Portland, Oregon, and been trying to figure out kind of how to bring together this idea of looking at body and mind as one versus as these very separate pieces. And especially in terms of working with folks who've had trauma histories of some Mm -hmm. sort and trauma 
come up with a really, really broad definition. So right now I've settled in on somatic therapist mm-hmm. and body worker. Previously it had been like mind body psychotherapist. And then before that was just clinical social worker. So I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out kind of where, what the right term is, but essentially I do talk therapy, but also integrate somatic touch into a lot of the work that I do. So I have a massage table up in my office and we often spend half the session talking and half of the session doing work from the body kind of bottom up processing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like other people that I've interviewed, if they don't do what is considered traditional psychotherapy, they have a problem naming it, right? Because it's this thing that I do a lot of cool stuff and like I'm smushing it together and what the fuck do I call it? But it's just cool. Just trust me. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. I know. I feel the same way. I think it's really cool, but it's hard to give it a name that people understand without a lot of explanation. And sometimes people aren't wanting that full explanation, but also don't really understand what you do at all. So it is kind of a constant adjustment. Yeah. And I still think it's funny when I tell people I'm a therapist and they're like, oh, physical therapist? Like, come the fuck on. Who goes there first? No, (laughs) no. You just don't want to talk about your fucking feelings. That's what your problem is. Exactly. Well, they're kind of hoping that you're a physical therapist because they'd be way more comfortable with that. Exactly. Yeah. It's like diagnostic when people will say physical therapist. Like, okay, I know a lot about you just by that. (laughs) Right. Or if they just say, oh, silence. Right. (laughs) Yeah. For people who are not listening, we can read your minds. Mm -hmm. No, JK, we can't. But we just can tell a lot by (laughs) with a few small words because human behavior is so predictable. But I'd like to also say that we're not always analyzing people, which I think is what people worry about with us a lot of the time. Like, I don't want to be working that hard all the time. I am, though. And that's... <laughs> I am always analyzing people, not because... Okay, well, I'm not. Right, right. Some therapists are. <laughs> right. Well, I guess, you know what the truth is? I'm not analyzing you if I know you're analyzing yourself. Ah, uh, that's interesting. I think I'm not analyzing... Even if you're not analyzing yourself. Yeah. I've got a couple friends that we do this video app called Marco Polo and it's three of us. We're all three therapists. And so we're like leaving each other video messages. And what I've realized, cause you know, it's, it's been interesting to like have conflicts with other therapists and be able to work it out and repair it and all that kind of stuff. And what I realized is I only feel safe in relationships if I know that you're going to own your own shit. And I know you're only going to own your own shit if you're doing your work. That's true. So you only don't analyze when you feel safe. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, oh, that's a protective measure. I kind of feel like when I'm in social situations, that's not my go-to. Yeah, I think that I can kind of really shift pretty quickly into like, okay, I'm in social mode now. And that compartmentalization, I think sometimes is helpful. Uh, I think it would be extremely helpful. I wish I had that. That's my problem. That's why that's why I can only be in relationships with other therapists right now. <laughs> Cuz I can't tolerate bullshit. I agree with you that I can only be in close friendships with people who are in a similar space where they are working on self-awareness and checking in with their own stuff. That that is really important to me, but I think that I think the shutdown that analyzing other people are really getting overly involved in kind of what's happening for them. Mm-hmm. So I think for me it's a separate process. But I agree with you on the close relationships. I think that would be impossible to do. I think I used to do that. I think in college and in high school, I had all these relationships with people who, you know, were not in that place. And 
then probably in you know graduate school started to realize that that was not really filling me in any way. Yeah. And oftentimes it took a lot of energy. Right. Because I feel like this self-exploration is a desire to uncover the truth. And I use that term loosely because I don't want it to be like truth with a capital T, meaning that there's one way and this is the only way. But <laughs> but yeah. I do feel like there is a certain amount of of clear seeing and truth that when I see it about you and you don't, that's exhausting for me to hold and pretend like I don't see it. Yes, I totally agree with that. And I also, I mean, I like the clarification around the truth piece too, because I think that mm-hmm. people can relate it too much to this this one singular mm-hmm. piece of knowledge that you're yearning for. And that's not it. It's really, it is more about kind of clarity and clearing out maybe some of the old stuff that gets in the way and becomes kind of a fog to what's actually happening. Right. Well, I love that we just like jumped in head first, like right away. <laughs> <laughs> Not surprising, though. Me too. That's how we roll. That's how we roll. Let's talk more about you a little bit for a minute. Because when you and I first started working together, you were, quote unquote, just a therapist. And I remember when you went back to school to do the massage therapy piece of it. And so I'm curious for you to tell the listeners a little bit about your journey first to, you know, becoming a social worker, and then what made you add on the massage piece? Yeah, I was thinking about it a little bit as I was thinking about us talking today. And from this point in my life, looking back, it all seems as if I had this plan. Right. And I didn't at all. I went to grad school to become a social worker, honestly, because I didn't know quite what I wanted to do, but that seemed about right. (laughs) And I I liked spending time talking to people and I'd worked at Planned Parenthood, and that was the part that I enjoyed the most was doing the counseling piece. So I thought, sure, social work sounds great. Mm-hmm. And went to school and thought I was going to be a medical social worker. And I think just took a job when I got to Chicago <laughs> mm-hmm. at Alternatives and found that I loved doing therapy. And at some point along the line, realized that there was some piece of the body that was missing. And I think at that point, it was probably like 10 years ago, there were some little drops of kind of somatic work coming into our field. Yeah. Um, there were trainings on integrating yoga, although there was still a lot of question and a lot of nervousness about, wait, you're going to have your clients do yoga, or you're going to lay on the floor, or you're going to mm-hmm. do anything besides sit in your appropriately assigned chairs, right. you know, facing each other and talking. Mm-hmm. So started to dip into that a little bit, but it wasn't I love yoga. I love doing yoga. I have no interest in becoming a yoga teacher. <laughs> so ended up deciding to go back to school for body work just to understand a little bit more what's happening in the body, the function of the body, the way that shifts in our experience can impact the shifts in our posture and how all those things connected, I guess. And I think for a long time, it ended up just being that those two things were incredibly separate. Mm -hmm, (laughs) I found like, okay, mm -hmm. here's my bodywork knowledge and here's my therapist knowledge. And I wanted to bring them together and I had no clue how. Mm. And so I had a private massage practice for a while and then kept working at alternatives. And that was lovely. But I still just had this urge to pull them together. And it took up until I got to Portland in the last couple of years. It's finally kind of come together in a way that feels more natural. So I, I started doing craniosacral work once I got to Portland. And that was a really nice integrative piece that held this idea of emotions and our physical selves and our emotional selves being one and the same. So 
I started to integrate a little bit of that, but still felt a little bit nervous. And honestly, I think like those ethics classes that we take in grad school that yeah. talk so clearly about boundaries with clients, they get into your head in ways that you don't anticipate. Mm-hmm. So this idea of bringing touch into my work took a while to kind of get over, which was funny because when I had my bodywork hat on, I had no problem. <laughs> so right. it really was just a psychological thing. Yeah, totally. To kind of work through and spent a lot of time talking to my own therapist who was a Hakomi practitioner, which is Ooh. another form of somatic yeah. therapy about like how to integrate it in and like when do I transition over and how do you know how do I talk to clients about this and so mm-hmm. it's been this whole process and then I found this work called somatic regulation and resilience that is to some extent was connected to somatic experiencing but not directly there are different folks who developed it and it was like the perfect integration of the two. And so for the past two years now, I've been doing that work and just finished a full certification course. Yeah. I know. It's so exciting. It was, it's been such incredible work. And while I was going through the training, also began to receive somatic touch work from another practitioner in Portland, which has yes. also been incredible. Because I don't feel like when you learn a new modality too, I I think it's a strange thing to try to integrate without knowing what it feels like to be on the other end. Oh my God, yeah. So that I felt lucky that there was somebody here and somebody close by that I was able to go to that I felt comfortable with. Yeah, it's interesting because I learned energy psychology, which there's a lot of like tapping. It's like EFT is one piece of energy psychology. And like, I can't do it with clients because I've never had it done to me. And I need like that repetition to actually like get it into my bones as a therapist to be able to like shoot it out my fingers, you know? Yeah, it is a strange thing. I think I need to feel it in my own body. Yeah. To feel like it's authentic to be able to offer. Yeah. Will you explain the somatic touch a little bit? I mean, we had Sarah Wolfman on episode three, and I know you listened to that and you were like, oh, I did. I was so excited to hear her talk. (laughs) As you heard in the episode, I see her for somatic touch. I mean, she does a little bit of everything. I think she does a little craniosacral and all the magical things. But the work that she and I have done together, I realize I'm at this point in my own journey where I'm really unearthing some core stuff and stuff that's like, I think, generational trauma as well Mm -hmm. as as just my own. And really, I mean, my therapist is pretty amazing and her episode just dropped. So you can certainly listen to that. And she does great work. But like, there's something about the touch work that gets in there in a totally different way. And I don't know if I would have unearthed some of this stuff without Sarah's assistance. So I'm curious your thoughts about how that works. Do they even tell you how it works? Or is it just like, well, this is magic, just do it. (laughs) (laughs) They did explain it. And it's really complicated. And I'm still wrapping my brain around it. And Mm. while I was going through the certification, purchased like 10 books that I'm slowly trying to work my way through now, including one that they wrote that just came out called Nurturing Resilience. So I mean, I think the thing that started to get me and made sense about why the body needed to be a part of this, at least one of the reasons, is that it makes sense to me that we can't talk about things that we didn't store in our memory memory in a verbal way. And now having little ones at home, it's so obvious to me, like there's no way that my one and a half year old would be able to 20 years from now go into a therapist's Mm. office and say, this thing when I was one happened and it was really hard and I'd really like to work through it. Like, (laughs) not to be able to do that, right? Right. But he may develop some body responses to things that 
happen, right? Or mm. to something that comes up in the family or ways that we respond to him, right? He also comes up with ways to settle his body in ways that he will just know for the rest of his life without actually having to know them. Right. So that's a lot of what they talk about in the training, in the certification part that I went through was early developmental trauma. So talking about even our own birthing stories, they talk a little bit about the epigenetic intergenerational trauma, which I think is fascinating. Oh God, isn't it? Yeah. So it's something, I think it was an acupuncturist here who said this to me, which has kind of blown my mind. And I've shared this with other clients, but that we all existed within our maternal grandmother. Right. Right. Cause the eggs are there. Yeah. Already. Yeah. And so to really think that like some part of your body was there two generations ago yep. is incredible. It also makes a lot of sense, right? That there might be things that you're carrying that you can't really place. I've definitely had a handful of clients who come in and are like, I don't know of any trauma, but like I have all these symptoms mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or all these physical things going on that Western medicine or even there's a big naturopath community here, but they just can't quite get turned around or can't help mm -hmm. them to understand. And I feel like maybe this is somatic, but I don't really know. And I found that talk therapy was not super helpful in those mm -hmm. cases. Mm -hmm. So it just seems like this overall kind of settling of the nervous system, kind of lowering the baseline, giving people a little bit more space to be able to explore those ups and downs is really kind of how it works. And by trying to address directly kidneys and adrenals that impact mm -hmm. cortisol production and adrenaline production, they talk about the back of the skull as being a hypervigilant center. So what I know like from body work, right, is there are all these tiny, tiny little muscles, the suboccipital muscles that go right along the ridge of the base of the skull. Right. And they protect your brainstem. Oh, wow. But, so wait, is that for a lot of folks who have some trauma in their past or intergenerational trauma, that it's really tight. It feels like a rock mm. when you first start there. Oh, shit. Um, now and now I'm pressing on mine. I'm like, oh, I know. that's, that's pretty it? tight. Yeah. Oh, here's Jesus feeling pretty tight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Given what's going on for you right now, that makes sense, right? True. You've got a lot going on. Yes. So all those protective responses will jump up, even though you know that you're not necessarily in danger that it's just stress right, or right. something else, but that your body may still understand it as such. So we do, I usually spend like 20 minutes or more with clients on the table, sometimes doing visualizations, working through specific situations, but noticing what's shifting in their body and encouraging them either to actively do something differently in their body or just noticing what happens and being able to sit with it until it passes. So helping to remind yeah. their body and their mind that this is not danger, that this is not life-threatening. Right. And it's been incredible, the things that people see. And I think you had said this in the episode with Sarah Wolfman too, but it just feels like magic kind of. Mm -hmm. There's so much more ease with which things change. There's less of kind of, well, I wonder if you said, you know, approach the situation in this way. It just kind of starts to change. Right. I just was interviewing a Buddhist teacher and we were talking about, you know, mindfulness and that kind of path. And we were talking about the word healing and that there has to be some level of health and healing to be done in order to then walk that path. And I think of this work is kind of sets that foundation because Yes. Like, for instance, I saw Sarah on Tuesday. And the first thing I did on Tuesday was I'm trying to learn the new electronic medical record system that we're going to be using for our new IOP. And of course, 
it's so daunting. And of course, it just brings up more questions rather than actually like learning it. It's just like, oh, this needs to get fixed. That needs to get fixed. Oh, I need to talk to this person about that. Oh my God. Ah. And so I like flipped out, totally was feeling like this perfectionist, like angst. And then I went to see Sarah and I was just like, you know, all this stuff. And she just laid me on the table, does the somatic touch, like put her hand on my kidneys. And then an hour later, I was able to take action from a place of wellness rather than reacting and spinning my wheels. Exactly. And you now probably can tell that shift. Yes. Yeah. When you live in that place where you're just reacting all the time, you don't even know that that other space exists. Right. And that was, that was my twenties. <laughs> I know. I just got yeah. rid of all this wide range of where I can be and how different it feels and how different my response might be, even if the situation is exactly the same. Right. There is just this, like, I love the terms, like just kind of the settling or the dropping in. Cause I kind of imagine sometimes there being almost like a windstorm when mm. things are all over the place. And then as all that dust settles, you can actually see what's there. Mm, I love that. The imagery has been coming up more, I think, for me as I've been doing the work longer. Initially, mm. I was like, I don't know what you people are talking about or how you're seeing these things. But, mm. mm-hmm. but it's starting to come up more, which I really like. Mm. So cool. Mm-hmm. So I'm really curious of your answer. I kind of feel like I can almost predict what you're going to say. But the term healer in application to this work, what is your response, madam? I'm so curious to hear what your prediction is. I'm going to tell you after. Okay. I struggle with that word. Duh, I knew it. (laughs) (laughs) That was my prediction. (laughs) I'm so predictable. (laughs) Honestly, that's how everybody answers pretty much. So it's not just you. Okay, so I'm not unusual in that. No. I feel like there's healing that goes on for sure, but it feels so much more collaborative than Mm -hmm. it's like I'm walking in and just like laying my hands on somebody and saying, okay, you're healed. Right? I think... There's so much that goes on for somebody to actually be willing. And I'm not just talking about willing from more of a conscious place, but also for their body to feel willing to seek out safety, to check and see if that's there. So I think that those are the spaces in which the healing happens. And I feel like to call oneself a healer kind of brings in this idea that you can do it on your own, I guess. I'm going to blame Jesus for that. (laughs) Sounds fair. Right? But I'm not joking because you answered almost the exact same way that everybody answers on this podcast. And I'm starting (laughs) to get pissed off about it. Not at you, but like, why can't we step into that word as healers? But it means that collaborative healing. Why can't that be the definition? And I think I'm going to blame Jesus. And the things that people put on him or other people that maybe have been called healers through the times you know, that, that he was the son of God. And therefore he had this capacity to just be like, boop, loaves and fishes. There you go, bitches. But that's honestly, like if we really looked back at what was happening at that time, I'm going to guess that's not what happened either. Right? Like I'm going to guess that it was healing and collaboration. And so it's just this magicalness that maybe we put on the quote unquote healer archetype. And I just want to fucking reject that. And maybe it's selfish because I want to be able to call myself a healer because I feel like it's an honor to have the gifts to be able to lead people through that space. And I want other people to stand next to me with that rather than being like, no, I can't call myself a healer. Like, I'm just, I'm (laughs) pissed off about it. (laughs) 
I'd be curious why that word in particular feels as important to you, which I don't mean to be turning this around on you, but no, but that's fine. You know, could there be another word, I guess? Mm -hmm. Because I I agree. Like, I don't think clinical social worker or body worker, any of those Mm -hmm. things quite capture what's happening either Mm -hmm. or what my role is in the healing that happens. But I also think that there are folks who give themselves the name of healer who aren't actually doing much healing, where it's more about their own ego. Right. And so I feel like if somebody else maybe said, I feel like you were my healer, I may feel differently about it than actually, I don't like, I would never put it on a website or anything like that. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. So I think for me, it also comes from wanting to separate a little bit from that world. I think that's out there too, of people just kind of claiming that name for themselves. Snake oil salesman. Yeah. So what is it about that word in particular that really calls you? I feel like there's a spiritual quality to it Mm -hmm. that I'm starting to step into in a really cool way. And I feel there's a level of trust in the gifts that I've been given that's different than I've ever had before. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think I've talked about this in other episodes, like as a child, I was told everything's fine, but I didn't feel fine. And I've now learned that that like intuitive and some circumstances like psychic gift of like knowing what's going on, even though people aren't saying words about it, like that is what makes me good at my job. And I think, yeah, I guess like I'm putting like gifts with healing and spirituality with it. And maybe it's also just being an eccentric Aquarius and wanting it to be a little more exotic. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I think there's a lot wrapped up in it. Yeah, I don't know. For some reason, I like the term better when you add wounded to it. (laughs) Ah, take it there. Take it home. Our society's use of the word kind of brings on this idea, too, of like this all-knowing, all-powerful person. And I don't think that's who most of us, myself, for sure. Right. And that's not we are, right? I I mean, I think about that sometimes that I know that I have clients who think that I've got to figure it out. And right. Dummies. We're just as crazy as you are. Yeah. Yeah, I think that would be a really hard place from which to connect with somebody. Right. Yeah. So I think I like the term a little bit more with wounded in front of it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I mean, a lot of people will talk about one cannot be a healer if you're not wounded because then you're just spouting bullshit. Yeah. Again, going back to that idea, kind of having to have had some of that felt experience yourself. Mm-hmm. Not always the exact same thing, but but some sense of it. Yeah. I always tell my clients, like when I, when I explain empathy and not needing to have had the same experience, I'm like, if I had to go through every experience that every client I see went through, I'd be dead. Because <laughs> literally, I would. That's a really good point. Well, would you be willing to share a little bit more about some of the wounds that you've been able to work towards healing that then you're able to support other people through? Yeah. So, I mean, I think some of the things that anxiety has definitely been something that's been present for me. And I think I have realized now how embedded it has been in my family Mm. and, and how normalized it's become in a way is almost this, like, this is how you get things done. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Mm-hmm. So if you're not anxious, like how, how the hell are you possibly going to be successful or do what you need to do, right? Mm-hmm. Like you must be anxious so that you are on top of things, which now kind of makes me laugh because it's so clear how untrue that right, is right. and how self-defeating it 
actually is, right? Like the more anxiety, mm-hmm. the less you can actually, I mean, physiologically, like you can't really see what you need to do or really be present or right. And so mm-hmm. this moving away from that idea and that way of seeing the world and myself has been really big. And the somatic work I think has probably honestly helped the most. The self-compassion piece, I think, is something that I am actively working on and trying to be as gentle with myself as I can be with other people, which I think fits into the anxiety piece. And so all things, I feel like those themes have really gone through my work. I mean, I think that part of why when I was starting grad school, I realized that it was really easy for me to be able to be present with people because that's a role that I played in my family from a very Mm -hmm. young age. Mm -hmm. And looking back, I don't know that I would have chosen to have played that role quite as young as I did. <laughs> right. Because I think it, it also took away this potential to be able to be a kid and be playful mm. and be goofy and be even like out of control at some level at different points mm-hmm. and have been told like I was very serious as a kid. <laughs> you know, like, oh. Right. Like, and, and so I think those are things that kind of prevented me from seeing my whole self and in areas of myself, I'm still trying to find, like, I I believe that they're there. And I think that's somewhat different too. just not accepting that as like, that's who you are, but trying to really understand, like, I don't have to be that all the time. And Mm -hmm. I think it has brought me ease in certain situations. And I think that when I'm working with clients, like I feel so at ease which is probably why they, you know, they sense that like, this is a very comfortable position for me to be in, but kind of actively putting myself in positions that are not so easy mm-hmm. <laughs> and not so comfortable. This for sure being one of them. Yeah. Like just talking about myself for longer periods of time is, is a really unusual experience still. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, I don't know. I mean, those aren't really specific, I guess, more themes that I'm naming. No, no, that's fine. Yeah. And then, you know, there are other things like as I've, move through being a therapist, there have been things happening in my own life. As we've moved through, I've had two children. I had a couple of miscarriages in between and was mm-hmm. kind of working through all of those. And so really, I think, encountered grief and loss in a way that mm. I hadn't before and into kind of feeling betrayed by my body and then having to mm. relearn to trust it. And I think that that has added some depth to my work and added an ability to kind of be with people around loss and grief in a way that probably I couldn't have before. And trauma, you know, because that is traumatic. When you were just saying like feeling betrayed by your body and not being able to trust your body. For the first time in my life, fairly recently, I uncovered some old trauma. I'm still not sure whether it was exactly mine or whether it was somebody else's generationally. But for the first time, I felt what it felt like to literally not be able to do something because trauma was making it impossible. And that's such a gift because I wouldn't have known what that felt like otherwise. And I, you know, could have done some harm trying to push somebody into something that was clearly not appropriate. So thank God for that in my case. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, I wasn't grateful for it in the moment. I can look back and recognize that as a part of my story and Mm -hmm. as a part of my understanding and my experience in life that again, sometimes I think we can focus so much on only experiencing the positive yeah. and having things be good all the time, but realizing that that range really does go down into these really dark places that are helpful to visit once in a while too. Right. As long as you don't live there. I think that's the hard piece. Is that's not a place you want to live. Right. Actually on either extreme. Exactly. And thank you for, you know, being honest about that. Cause I think that miscarriage is something that still is a lot of people don't want to talk about. And yeah, 
from my understanding, it's more common than not for a woman who has bared a child to have a miscarriage at some point. So thank you for being willing to put that out there. Right when it was happening, I think I really was cautious about who I shared with because, Mm -hmm. you know, similar to other difficult things, sometimes you tell somebody and there's just silence. (laughs) I think when you're in the midst of it, you need somebody to be able to catch you and catch what you're sharing in a way. And Definitely, you know, with a few misses, mostly had a lot of support around that time. But I do think, yeah, people didn't talk about it. And when mm-hmm. I started having it, so I had three in a row. Jeez. But after the first one, I started talking to people more and then people would share stories. But they were people that I had no idea who had been through that. Right. I just had no idea. Right. Oftentimes they happen early enough that nobody knows that you're going through this because they mm-hmm. didn't know you were pregnant in right. the first place. And yeah. so it's this really strange parallel world that you're kind of going back and forth in between. And I think, Mm. again, in some ways, and I worked all the way through pretty much because it actually was really calming for me to come into this place where I wasn't sharing personal information that much anyways. And so it felt like things were more congruent when I was in my office (laughs) than in the rest of my world, you know? Mm. Yeah. So I think it's really important to talk about the full experience of what it means if you are trying to have kids Mm. and in whatever way, shape, or form. Right. Well, and infertility is such a big thing that, again, is kind of this other piece that women still stay pretty quiet about in general. I just wonder if it's kind of just the way that we're socialized to just push through some of these things and the way that women's bodily functions are still, it's kind of taboo, you know, I don't even know why, but, or maybe also just the expectation that as a woman, my body should be able to do X, Y, Z. And if it doesn't, then I'm flawed. So many reasons, right? I think that last one really rings true to a large extent, right? And Mm -hmm. this idea kind of of when I choose to, I'll be able to, right? That you assume that everything will be fine and this just happens. And again, because people don't talk about when it doesn't work out very well, Right. the assumption is you make a decision with a partner and you take whatever steps you need to, to be able to get pregnant and then you just go. Right. And even the steps to get pregnant are varied depending on lots of factors. Right. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, there is just this idea that there's a lot of shame I think that comes with it. And I think what was fascinating to me is we mostly work with midwives, not all, but in some physicians, but how unsurprised they were about this and how unconcerned in certain ways. Mm. But the people we worked with for the most part were really, really incredible and supportive mm-hmm. and, but kind of held this as this is all a part of this normal experience, right. which kind of blew my mind, right? Like, of, yeah. wait, oh, this is just normal. This is a part of what you could expect. Mm-hmm. And, you know, also this trying to become comfortable with not knowing why, mm-hmm. not knowing what's next. And letting go of control. And, you know, when you were talking about this idea of my partner and I make a decision and we get pregnant and we have a baby and done. And that's like, (laughs) okay, I've got my life planned out. I have control over all of these things. And I think that that's, you know, our higher power being like, teehee, nope, not. (laughs) It's it's just going to be what it's going to be. It's not really your timeline. That's interesting. Yeah. So I think as we continue to progress as a society, I hope that that becomes more a part of the conversation because I think if the shame can be taken out of it, it would relieve a lot of the suffering that goes along with it. Right. Well, and the way to eradicate shame is self-compassion and empathy. So I think yes. we're on the right track. 
Right. And not keeping secrets. Right. I mean, that's the, something that I think that comes up in trauma work all the time, that if you have few people that you can talk to or if it's something that's not seen as shameful, it ends up having less impact than right. if it's something that has to be a secret on top of also being difficult or traumatic. Well, and that's the counterintuitive thing about shame is that when you're experiencing shame, it wants you to keep things a secret. And that's the opposite of what you need to do. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Good old Brene Brown. Can't go wrong <laughs> with her work. I do like her work, too. Yeah. Have you read Braving the Wilderness, the new one? I haven't. No, the last one I read was Rising Strong. Yeah, honestly, I didn't care for Rising Strong. I hope nobody assassinates me for being a certified daring way facilitator and not liking that. I didn't like it. It felt contrived, to be honest. But Braving the Wilderness felt like her authentic voice again. I mean, it came out at a time when I think we needed to get some breathing space in between like the political divide. She speaks a lot to that. So if you have Audible and want to get the download to just listen to it, because she actually narrates that one. I recommend it. It's a good one. I'll add that to my stack of I know, right? on trauma on the body. <laughs> I know. We'll never read everything. Too much to read and not enough time. I really am just like drooling over books and then can't, you know, find know. the time to read for more than an hour a week or something like that. But. Oh, and I can't even imagine as a mother. Like, at least I have my time. Like, I can kind of sort of schedule my time to myself. But like, as a mom, you really don't have that. It's not always predictable or right. it's not, you know, by the time everyone's asleep and down, the last thing you want to do is like read about trauma. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I always think, oh, I'm going to read this in the evening. Right. No, nope, nope, I'm not. No. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Or you'll have like terrible dreams. Like I keep watching. Oh my God. I don't know why I keep doing this to myself, but I keep watching the scariest motherfucking shit right before I go to bed. <laughs> well, not necessarily scary, but like there's a documentary on Netflix about Rachel Dojal, the woman who yeah. is white and said she was black. And yeah. it's really interesting and really upsetting at the same time. Cause I just feel like there's like so much denial going on there with her. And I like just felt for her children. And then I watched the woman with seven personalities and oh goodness, yeah. And so like you watch this person like change in between personalities and it is heartbreaking. It's just incredible. And then I was like, Oh, why am I so stressed out? I don't know. Cause what I watch for fun is not really fun. <laughs> oh, and then I switched to drunk history and that's much more entertaining. That's much better. Yeah. yeah I was watching, I have a little mini celebrity crush on Trevor Noah Ooh. and his stuff just makes me, I laughed so hard, which is so nice and definitely where I go for the most part. Sometimes I watch more depressing things and now people will recommend novels to me and I, if it's about like, really intense, like historical, horrible things that have happened to people. I'm just, I can't do it. As interesting as I find that to be like, to mm -hmm. kind of try to understand kind of the human condition in all of its forms, I just can't. Yeah. And especially not before bed. I don't know how <laughs> you were sleeping after watching this. I don't things. know either. I don't know. Although I know a handful of people, like clients and friends who watch Law & Order SBU before bed. <laughs> and that also seems like a really poor plan. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I guess it's more predictable than probably better than looking on Facebook and like getting yeah, triggered by whatever comes up there. So <laughs> Right. Which you're completely not in control of. Not in control of. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to be mindful of our time. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you really want to speak to? I think we touched on most of the points that I thought we would talk about. 
I feel like there was something that I was thinking of, but I've completely lost track of it. So yeah, not that I can think of right now. Well, maybe we can do this again sometime. Yeah, I would love that. Yay. Well, Anjali, thank you so much for being willing to do this. I'm so excited to have had you as a guest. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. This was lovely. Thank you so much to Anjali Shaw Johnson for being with me today. And as always to Andrea Clunder and Edwin Ruiz at the Creative Imposter Studios for editing. Thanks to Liam O'Donnell for taking that awesome album art photo and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. To learn more about Anjali and her work, you can visit my website at www.headhearttherapy.com podcast. And please subscribe to Conversations with the Wounded Healer on iTunes or follow us on Spotify. Connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. And you can always check the website for more details. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. Bye-bye.